One Week Season. OWS fam, the nation, my dudes and dudettes, what is going on? Week four NFL in the year of our Lord 2021. Let's do this. Zandamir, how's it, my dude? Oh, it's good. Uh, I've got a sick kid and a sick wife at home. Uh, kids mostly getting better. Oh. But in better news, the Giants can clinch the NL West uh, with a win today, and they're up two to one in the sixth inning. So I'm excited about that. I'm a Giants fan uh, for many years, and they were supposed to be absolutely garbage this year. You could have gotten like 50 to one odds on the Giants to win the division preseason. I did not bet that, but uh, here they are. How did that come about? Did you spend some time down in the uh, down in California? I grew up in California. Um, ah. The first, I grew up in Santa Barbara. The first baseball game I ever watched was actually the what was it? It was either the '88 or I think it was the '88 World Series with the Dodgers and the A's with Kurt Gibson with the pinch hit home run. You know what I'm talking about? Like yeah, that was yeah. the first baseball game I ever saw. Um, and then somehow, like, but I didn't really get into baseball until after I moved up to the Bay Area a little bit later, um, and then kind of and then became a baseball fan and like. My roommate and best friend was a Giants fan, so I kind of fell into that. And they were, it was like 2008, so they were terrible at the time. Um, but it was fun. It was a fun ride. And I mean, I was, you know, I was there for like the world. I was living in San Francisco uh, for the first World Series in 2010 um, and yeah. the next one in 2012. So like that was super fun. Um, yeah. Yeah, man. You lived through the Lincecum era. So that's, that's a big deal. Uh, yes. Yeah. The happy Timmy <laughs> days. Um, and uh, I mean, it's, man, baseball's weird, right? Like some of those careers are so short, like guys like Lincecum and Matt Cain were so good and they just, in uh, football too, right? Like I, I think back sometimes yeah. to like the early days when I was playing DFS and the players, uh, like there's not many that I, that are around today that I still play. Um, I think Julio Jones, right? Like Tom Brady, of course, like some of the QBs. I remember when Devontae Adams was thought of as a busted prospect and no one wanted to play him in DFS because he was awful for like his oh, first yeah. year or two. Um, like it's just, it's, it's weird how quickly uh, sports changes. Yeah, for sure. That's yeah. uh that's a sick lead in actually to this week because kind of the macro makeup of this slate uh, has changed pretty significantly from the first three weeks. And mm. A lot of that revolves around pricing. So, are you are you getting the same kind of feels that that pricing is so much more tight this week? Yeah, and like this is pretty normal, right? Like it's normal for week one to be full of value because uh, they post week one really early, and then you get like there's injuries and in preseason, there's there's role changes, right? So like there's always a lot of like value in week one. Um, and next couple of weeks, like there's still pricing is still kind of catching up, you know, like they don't make enormous uh, pricing changes in one week. And so it takes a little bit for pricing to kind of catch up to like where the roles are. And I mean, I think this will be pretty normal for the rest of the season with the exception that this week we don't have any like really standout value. There's no, you know, there's no min salary running back within this in a starting role. Right. Like, and we'll probably get something like that later in the season. Um, so this, like, this is normal pricing, I think. Um, except there's no like super clear value, uh, at least to me. Yeah. And that's, that's what I was seeing as well. I broke it down a little bit in the end around, um, that the, the perceived value this week is basically all at the wide receiver position. So that's going to mm -hmm. basically force people to make 
I don't know if I'll call it suboptimal plays, but they're going to make sacrifices in the sense that we're, we're getting to the area of real, real shaky floors. So um, these are like boom bust players or like players whose standard range of outcomes is like four for 40. So you're, you're sacrificing a lot of both ceiling and floor from one of your spots. And we'll get into kind of how that is going to affect this slate overall. And, and, really the the public perception and the kind of behind the scenes stuff that's going on uh with respect to how the field is really doing the slate so uh totally interesting i dig it we'll jump right in here how we usually start every week and we're going to talk about primary decision points so are you seeing or i guess what are you seeing as a primary decision point this week. And that can be anything from, you know, a single player, if we're seeing Uber chalk or all the way down to a week like this week, where uh, it's really from my eyes, a positional, but I want to hear what you have to say before I jump in. Yeah. So there's like, there's a couple angles on this. The first one, and we'll get into this later, I think. um, But the first one is, is game environment, right? There's several games that I think are really attractive. Um, high total games, relatively close spreads, uh, and and some of those games are attracting much more ownership than others, and, and some teams are attracting much more ownership than others, and so that's uh, that's kind of a macro decision point, not not around roster construction so much, but just around like which games of those high total games to target. There's you know the quote unquote best game environments that people will fix, uh, people will flock to, or, or they believe are the best game environments, uh, and ownership is dic- ownership is showing that people are perceiving that. Uh, you know, like uh, Carolina Dallas, I think. Is, is the one attracting the most ownership. Um, and there's other high total games out there as well. So there's there's the game environment. Then there's the positional positional stuff. So you're, I think you're right about wide receiver. There's there's a lot of ownership on some pay down wide receivers that are, and it wouldn't surprise me if some if one of them hit, but like they are low floor plays, right? Like what's his name? Westbrook Ekine, or I don't know if that's how it's pronounced. Um, you know, Terrence Marshall, Darnell Mooney, these kind of guys are attracting a lot of ownership. Uh, tight end, there's a lot of cheap ownership as well. So like we've got Will Disley with no Gerald Everett. We've got Evan Ingram. People are chasing the big games from Dalton Schultz, Tyler Conklin. If you add up all the ownership at tight end, there's about 50% combined ownership on tight ends below 4K. Um, and every, I mean, just every tight end below 4K has a pretty modest floor. Um, and then a defense, right? Like this is another one where over 50% of the field looks to be rostering one of four defenses which is Detroit, Atlanta, Jets, and Dallas. And the common factor there is they're all 2,600 or less. And and this makes sense to me, right? Like on a week without a lot of really clear value, uh, and we've had sort of years of common practice of DFS being like beaten into our heads of pay down at defense because it's the, it's the highest variance position. Um, so don't spend up. And you know, I, I personally believe that's incorrect, uh, at least as a, at least as an always rule. But what that, leads to when we have a week without a lot of value, people flock to the cheap defenses Um, because they're like, I can just punt defense. Who knows? Maybe they'll get a defensive touchdown. Maybe the Jets will show up this game. And uh, and that's that gives them the value they need. It gives them the salary flexibility they need. So there's I'm just looking at it right now. It's actually about 55 percent projected ownership on those four defenses. So that's that to me is a pretty pivotal decision point Um, just from a roster construction angle. As weird as it feels to say that defense is a pivotal point, I kind of feel like it is this week. No, I 100% agree with that. And when you start looking at the macro overall composition of the slate and and how we th- think that the field is viewing it through, 
you know, obviously ownership projections gives us a good, a good idea, a good glimpse into that kind of realm, uh, because it takes into account so many more aspects than, you know, we as humans can. Um, but when you start looking at it, you know, we we're presented with the only clear place for people to search for value being the wide receiver position. And then you have an inordinate amount of ownership expected on cheap tight ends and cheap defenses. Well, now you start to piece together what we can assume as the chalk roster construction. And so we can expect, and obviously, obviously there's other aspects that go into, you know, how we, how we come to the conclusion of what the chalk build is going to be. And there's been a lot of questions with that. I honestly, we don't really have the time here in this forum to go into everything that goes into that, but we've been trying to give examples and I've been trying to explain the process through the end around. Um, but if, if there are still questions, let us know in discord and maybe I can, you know, do a, a written piece or, or maybe a solo podcast or something on um, the process of identifying a chalk build. So let me know what your thoughts are on that. Uh, after this pod. Uh, but anyway, I digress. Also, another piece of the puzzle this week is that there are really no quote unquote value running backs. So there's really a, you know, maybe two or three plays under that 6,500 range at running back position where people are going to feel good about entering those into their lineup. So we start to see this bigger picture of we're likely to see people paying up at quarterback. We're likely to see people choosing their running backs from a pool that starts at like that 6,500 range and up. And we're likely to see people want to at least have one pay up wide receiver. Uh, there's a lot that goes into that as well. Um, one, obviously those pay up wide receivers carry the highest floors. And two, those are the receivers that are typically in these game environments that people are going to be wanting to tackle. And then three, there's another piece to this puzzle where we're finally starting to see the effects of previous performance of, um, of previous ownerships and all that being priced into the DraftKings, basically um, how they set pricing for the future. So everything that goes into um, how they are adjusting pricing is finally catching up in week four. And so we're seeing guys like Cooper Cup, who his salary jumped a thousand uh, from week three to week four. We're seeing these guys who have basically all the recency bias attached to them at the wide receiver position being priced up to match their floor. So that's going to, there's a psychological aspect that goes with that, where people are going to want to continue playing them without realizing that now they are not values anymore. They are just appropriately priced for their floor. And that's something that I really want to drive home is, is in DFS pricing is really most a reflection of a player's floor. And, you know, as you start getting into the cheaper guys at each position, there's always going to be an opportunity for, you know, one, twos, three Zs of those guys to see a outlier spike week and hit a ceiling. But really what you're paying for with a price uh, and salary is the floor. All right. So that that's uh that's pretty much how I'm seeing the slate. That's uh I agree with those primary decision points and kind of those ownership funnels. Anything else to add before we jump into uh a deeper look at the slate? I just want to note I think that your running back uh pricing tier is a little on the high end. I think it's as I'm seeing ownership at least, I think it's more like the six K range, not so much the six point five K range, because we're seeing like Montgomery Swift. 
uh, Chuba Hubbard, which is like one of the most amazing football names of all times. Uh, Gibson, like they're they're attracting a lot of ownership, and they're in that like right around closer to six k than six point five. But broadly, yes, um, I think people are going to be dumpster diving with some like some value plays that are that are pretty thin, um, are pretty thin floors, right? And again, that's there's nothing to say that those guys can't hit and have a good week. Um, but you're taking on a lot of risk with those plays. Yeah, I'll, I'll concur with that. I like it. All right, man. So we talked about the wide receiver position. That's actually the position that I want to start at this week because it is one of the primary funnels for, for both ownership and, um, I guess game environment and the overall roster constructions that we can expect this week. Any issues with that? Nope. Let's do it. All right, so looking at the wide receiver position, we now have, let me count them. Hold on, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. We have nine wide receivers that are priced at 7,000 or more. How does that compare to what we've seen up to this point so far in the season? Well, that's about a 30% increase from what we've seen uh, the average from weeks one to week three. So again, a reinforcement of players are now being priced up to match their floor. Obviously, the big glaring example is Cooper Cup, who has seen his basically a 2K price jump over three weeks span. So that's absolutely massive. Um, but what are you seeing from this position from a macro perspective, you know, with respect to how you feel the field is going to be attacking this position? I think of wide receiver a lot just in in the context of game stacks, right? So like I see as I look at ownership here, I see, you know, at the top we've got like the guys in the on the teams that we would expect. We've got uh Cup and Woods really highly owned from the Rams. We've got uh DJ Moore from the Panthers as well as Terrence Marshall from the Panthers. Uh we've got a fair amount of ownership on Dallas guys on Amari and Lamb. Um, so those are like a lot of the core game stacks for this week, right? Those three are the teams that people are going to stack really heavily. We've got a fair bit of ownership on bet on Odell Beckham, who's cheap and in another one of those high total games. So like a lot of the ownership for wide receiver clusters around the game stacks. And so like when I, when I start digging in here, what I tend to look at is I look at the highest total games and I look at where, uh, there's a high total team that has receivers that aren't capturing ownership. And I also look at where there's receivers on those teams that are chalky that aren't capturing ownership. And so like an easy example here, right, is uh, Cooper Cup and Robert Woods are really highly owned. Uh, Van Jefferson is going to be almost unowned and he's thirty nine hundred. So he's value. He gets he's cheap uh, and he's in one of those best game environments. But no one seems to be on him because he's the wide receiver three. Uh, I also look at like the other side of these games where we have like a lot of ownership on the Rams, but we have almost no ownership at all on any of the Cardinals receivers, which makes sense because people are like, well, how do I pick those guys apart? You know, like which Cardinals receiver is going to hit? It's, the roles are unclear. Um, we in, in Dallas, we have, you know, less ownership on like Robbie Anderson and on, on Cedric Wilson. And again, these plays are thin, right? Like Cedric Wilson is not a play I'd play in a vacuum. Um, but that's how I think about wide receivers. I think about it in the context of stacks. And if I want to stack a game, that's going to have a lot of ownership. Um, like I want to stack, you know, Dallas, uh, I'd, I'd probably prefer instead of pairing Amari and Lamb, I'd, pref- I'd prefer doing something like Lamb and Cedric Wilson, uh, where I, that way I can target these really great game environments, um, but still get a player in that great game environment who's not massive chalk and who gives me the value that I'm looking for without having to dip into like these weird, not weird, um, but without having to dip into the much chalkier value plays 
that are standalone, like Westbrook or um, or Mooney, right? Like I'd rather use a value play that's correlated with the rest of my roster. So like that's kind of how I tend to approach wide receiver at a high level. Um, and then at kind of a more micro level, I look at like you mentioned those wide receivers over 7K, right? And so those wide receivers are by and large good. Um, and most of them are projecting for pretty high ownership, but there's a couple of fairly glaring examples of ones that are not. And so, sorry, one second, just sorting here. So there's, let's see, uh, of wide receivers over 7K, uh, there are, let's see, three that are projecting, sorry, four that are projecting for sub 10% ownership. Most of them are projecting for quite high ownership. Um, but you've got like DeAndre Hopkins, Justin Jefferson, DK Metcalf, and Tyler Lockett all projecting for sub 10%. And so, again, this is another like, this is just kind of a, you know, a, a contrarian angle, um, <clears throat> slightly, I guess. And I don't think it's very contrarian, but like, I don't see much to really separate like Justin Jefferson and DK Metcalf from Steph Diggs and Cooper Cup. Uh, from a talent perspective, from a game environment perspective, like they're all elite receivers. They're, those guys are all in elite game environments. So, you know, what's why? Why is one projecting for one quarter the ownership of another? And you know, is Cooper Cup a favorite to outscore Justin Jefferson? Probably. If you gave me fifty-fifty odds, I'd take Cup. Um, but I don't think he's a massive favorite. I think he's maybe a 60-40 favorite, but you're getting a, you know, you're getting Jefferson at 25% ownership. So like that's also how I start looking through here. At running back, I'm much more willing to eat chalk. Uh is the 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 volume is much more predictable. Um, but at the you know the highest one of the higher variance positions, that's kind of where I lean into the variance side. And I'm I'm happy to play like a Jefferson or a or a Metcalf or a Lockett. Um and again, these are gonna be these are going to be based on the game stack that the roster's built around. Um, but I'm happy to target those games and think, you know, is is Seattle really that much worse of a team uh, from a fantasy scoring perspective? Is Are they really that much worse of a bet than the Rams? And I don't think so. Yeah, I absolutely love that. And there's two things that I really want to emphasize uh, from what you just said. And one, you continually talked about game stacks. So one of the greatest edges that we're going to see this weekend with the, with the decision checkpoints or the decision matrices that the players are going to have to make, um, and we know that they're going to be sacrificing floor. So one of the easiest things that we can do is stick to the fundamentals, right? So we go back to how do we manage variance? How do we raise a floor on a roster? Well, we attack game stacks, right? The second piece of that that you mentioned was these lower owned game stacks in good game environments. So we have Seattle wide receivers who are expected to garner very low ownership. We have San Francisco wide receivers who are expected to garner uh, really low ownership. And I'm going to come back to San Francisco because that is another uh, something that I really want to talk about today. And that's going to also lead us into a late swap discussion. So uh, I'll hold off on that now, but also Arizona and then Philadelphia. Like these are four teams who are in plus game environments who only one side of the game is expected to see ownership. And that is a, a very large mistakes in, in my eyes. So again, pairing the back to basics with the leverage generation um, is one of the easiest ways where we can maintain our expected value in a week like this, where pricing is a little bit more tight. So again, hammering home the fundamentals, the basics of, of DFS theory of game theory and making sure that we're not entering what, could be suboptimal plays as we're so focused on on ceiling alone. So 
I love all that you said. Anything to add on that? I just say if we want, like, what I think, what you think you see a lot of rosters do, especially in tournament play, like large tournament play on, on weeks like this, is they build around sort of their core stack. Um, and then they try to like fill it in with one-off pieces from, uh, and they're just trying to guess right on like a few low one-off pieces. So like you might say, might have a team that starts with Stafford and Cup and Woods and they're like, aha, there's my core stack of these highly projected Rams, but they also project for high ownership. And so I'm going to try to pick like a couple of, you know, really low owned plays. So I'm going to, I'm going to throw like, I don't know, Michael Pittman and Devonte Parker on there or something, right? Like whoever the players are, they try to find a couple of really low owned plays. And I feel like that's kind of like a dark throwing approach um, where you're just kind of hoping to get lucky on picking this, like, you know, 1% or 2% owned play that hits. Um, I think to Hilo's point, like, uh, better to kind of approach it from a more fundamentally sound way where your variance is encapsulated in the core game stack of the roster. So like your variant, like your, your high variance plays, your low floor plays are the guys like a Van Jefferson or a Deshaun Jackson or a Tyler Higby um, to go with your cup or woods. Uh, and then that means that the one-off plays you can filter around them are going to be more robust plays. Um, like trying to trying to pick one-offs of random receivers outside of game environments is much harder, at least. And I, I think it is, um, maybe that's me, but like, it's, there's so many other kind of random one-offs out there. Like I'd rather get my low ownership within the context of the game stack, uh, and then, and then fill the roster around it with plays that I feel are more robust than I would try to fill like a robust game stack and then filter in the random one-offs around it. Not only do I find that easier from a construction standpoint, but I also think that it's it's just an easy leverage point because most of the field is going to go with the the robust game stack and then the the sort of individual one-offs around it. And so if you just kind of flip that on its head and approach it from the other way, then when you're right, and you won't always be right, um, but when you're right, you're going to get a lot of positive leverage over the field on a, on a highly owned stack, which is really, really valuable, right? Like if a highly owned stack hits, um, but you do it, you play it in a leveraged way. Like you play, you know, like Cooper Cup hits, great. He's super owned. It doesn't really help you get to first. Um, but if Cooper Cup and Van Jefferson hit, then you're getting a lot of leverage on all the other Stafford double stacks that had Woods. You're also getting your value um, in a way that works, uh, in a way that works for you, and in a way that kind of keeps it within that game environment. So I think it's more likely to hit in that game environment stack than it is trying to pick like a random $3,900 one-off who's going to hit that everyone, and that's because that's what everyone else is trying to do. Yeah, so let's let the math do the talking of all those words that were just put out into the multiverse, right? So if no, so if you're so first of all, the GPP ceiling tool is a great tool, but I feel like a lot of people don't understand how to use it profitably, right? So if we're looking at the GPP ceiling tool and we pull up the 90th percentile range for GPP play, we are basically what that is telling us is that outcome has a 10% chance of happening, right? So it'll happen one out of 10 times, which is a 90th percentile outcome. Again, this is viewing a range of outcomes for a game with a lot of intrinsic variance and picturing where those data points land on a bell curve. So that is on the far right side, 90th percentile outcome. It's going to happen one out of 10 times. So if you enter a primary stack, and let's say you even stack it up with two pass catchers and a quarterback that takes up three positions of your roster, right? So how many do you still have left to fill in? You still have six positions left to fill in on most sites. 
So if you are pulling one-offs from the GPP ceiling tool, let's take this as an example, you're saying that I am betting on six individual 10% outcome chance of happening on one roster. And what is that doing? That's basically giving you a one one thousandth percent chance of like hitting that outcome from the from a pure math standpoint, right? So that is why game stacks, that is why correlation, that is why um, you know, all these tools that we're that we're hammering over this first, you know, 25 minutes of this podcast are so important because what does that do? Well, it lowers the number of things that have to go right or that have to bounce in your favor or that have to hit that 90th percentile game. For example, I'm going to use this example because it's my freaking love child for this week. And that's with Zach Wilson. Zach Wilson is priced at $5,000. His two primary wide receivers are priced at 5,000 as well and 4,600. If Zach Wilson has a 90th percentile outcome game this week, it is most likely that that production is flowing through those two primary guys because they have injuries uh, on the wide receiver position. They do not target tight ends. They do not target running backs very heavily. 72% of Zach Wilson's pass attempts this season have gone to wide receivers. We look at the game logs. Um, Braxton Berrios saw two games with target totals over 10 in the first three weeks of the season where Jameson Crowder has missed. So we know that the quarterback likes to target the slot. We know that his most talented receiver is Corey Davis. So if Zach Wilson has a 90th percentile outcome, what is that? I don't know, 300 yards and three touchdowns. Okay, 27 points. If that happens, it is most likely to flow through those two guys. So effectively, we have lowered the number of things that have to go right on any roster that we build that way because if one succeeds, it is highly likely that he brings the other two with him. So it's, it's that if-then statement that we've been hammering this uh, season so far as well. So that is just an example to, to illustrate the, the pure math based behind why we do what we do and why we, we formulate our strategies around or, or the way that we do. Um, that was a lot. Hopefully, I didn't lose anybody there. Did that make sense? I just want to. I just want to note here. I think it's really easy to say things like, "Well, Zach Wilson has looked terrible, and you know, like he he's looked scared. He's taken a bunch of sacks, and like all that. that none of that's wrong." But every player in the NFL has a range of outcomes, and that includes a 90th percentile ceiling outcome. And you know, Zach Wilson's 90th percentile outcome is going to project lower uh, than than most quarterbacks on the slate. Um, but it's still a, you know, he has an, like every player has an 90th percentile ceiling outcome, right? Like every player has a range. It's not like Zach Wilson, his, his range is, you know, zero to 10 points, right? His range is medians probably around 15 or so. Um, and so his ceilings probably around 25 ish. And, you know, you're not saying when you, when you build a roster like that, you're not saying Zach Wilson is a smash play. Who's going to hit, right? You're saying if Zach Wilson hits, this team has a very narrow distribution of volume currently um, based on what Hilo said, right? They're targeting wide receiver at, is that the league's highest rate? If not, it's probably close. Um, they've got injuries. So you can, you can project with a high degree of accuracy where that volume's going. Uh, and so you're saying like, look, it, he needs a 90th, 90th percentile outcome. That's only going to hit 10% of the time, but it's somewhere you, you need 90th percentile outcomes from someone on your roster. And so like, 
whether that's Dak Prescott or Patrick Holmes or Zach Wilson, like you still need a 90th percentile outcome to win tournaments. And, you know, it's not saying that it's, it's not saying Zach Wilson's going to smash. It's saying if he does this, the we have a high degree of confidence in who's catching those passes. Whereas with another play, like let's say you could also make the same argument with Jameis Winston, sort of, right? You could say, well, Jameis Winston has a 90th percentile outcome of, of probably probably higher than Zach Wilson. But the problem is we can't say with as high a degree of confidence if Jameis hits that 90th percentile, who's benefiting? Because the Saints are all over the place in their in their pass game usage. You're kind of you're having to guess. Uh, whereas with that with Zach Wilson, you have a high degree of confidence in in where the where the volume is going. So that's the advantage there, right? It's not like it's no one I don't think anyone's trying to predict Zach Wilson as some absolute smash play. It's just when you have a narrowly distributed offense where you have a high degree of confidence where the volume's going, it makes a lot of sense to bet on that. Because to Hilo's point, you can sort of check off two or three roster spots with one decision. Yeah. So the league average and wide receiver target rate is 61%. The Jets currently fall third at wide receiver target rate, just behind the it's actually Washington who leads the league, and then Buffalo is number two. So, of course, um, Buffalo, they're getting, yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. So, all of that is again to say, like, we're trying to lower the things that need to go right in order for us to be put in the best position to succeed. And when we are in the best position to succeed, we want to be in the best position to make the most money. So, it's it's about lowering the number of things that has to go right for us to make the most money. <laughs> so. Basically, yeah. the last 10 minutes of discussion boils down to. All right. Well, that and and the, you know, how much do you win when you win? Right. Like, yeah, if you play this is actually so um, <clears throat> Drew Dinkmeyer is one of the other guys who writes a lot of great strategy content uh, out there. And far be it for me to tout another site. But Drew's really, really sharp um, and a good writer. And, you know, he talked he, he sort of mathed out the concept of leverage and contrarian play in tournaments and basically showed why playing a lot of chalk. Uh, it playing a lot of chalk is wonderful if your goal is caching. Um, if your goal is winning, playing a lot of chalk is not so great, right? The Millie Maker last week did not have Cooper Cup, um, which I didn't actually notice. I don't tend to look at the Millie Maker every week, but um, you know, like Cooper Cup was a super chalk play. He smashed. He had a great week. Um, but true must have in order to win scores are really rare. And you know, his point is basically the math is saying if you play a lot of really chalky plays you're increasing your odds of cashing, but you're lowering your odds of finishing first. Because, you know, when you're 25% on play hits, uh, that's not necessarily, that's not pushing you up to first as much as, as much as when you're, you know, when you're 3% owned pivot off that 25% owned play hits. And, you know, there's, you know, there's smart differentiation, right? You don't want to have all 2% on plays. You're probably taking on too much risk, but the concept here is called asymmetric risk, where uh, your payoff when you win in a contrarian play style is so high that uh, even though you're taking on more risk rostering players who have a lower likelihood of hitting than some of the chalk plays, uh, your your payoff is so high that it more than makes up for the risk you're taking on. And so the risk is asymmetric. You're, you're essentially you're taking on risk, but you're getting you're getting more EV than the cost of the risk you're taking. So that's kind of math heavy, um, but uh, you know it's it it makes how do I close that? I mean that's math heavy, but as a math geek, I can tell you it makes sense. Um, if you're not a math geek, I don't know how I can convince I, I don't I know how I can convince you it makes sense, right? How is math geek too? He gets it. But like, yeah. um, well, oh my gosh, shit! The Padres have a runner on third with no outs. No. 
let that's me all, that's all at that point <laughs> let me illustrate that in a different way for my poker players in the room that is basically the same as pot odds so there are basically always a time where the am- amount of money in the pot justifies a call based on the implied odds of winning that pot well if you think about that in the in the form of gpp the amount of money in the pot is first place so if we are aiming to win the money amount of money in the pot like we need to put ourselves in the best position and there's always going to be plays where it makes more sense to accept additional risk to make that happen or there are also plays where we can um basically shift those pot odds in our favor and that is by you know sticking to the basics and everything that we've talked about here already so uh hopefully that made sense um love the discussion we're going to try not to math nerd geek out too much here, but that is, that's the why behind the how, and that's the, a big part of what we're trying to do here at OWS. So um, that is extremely important concept and theory to understand here. So we, we talked a little bit about the quarterback position. I brought us there with Zach Wilson. So we'll go there next and talk about the quarterback position. When we're looking at the ownership, the top six, yeah, Basically, the expected ownership is right down the list on the top seven quarterbacks with respect to pricing. And that is, again, very telling coming into this week. So how are you viewing the quarterback position X and how are you uh, leveraging and attacking that? I just want to talk about Patrick Wilson some more. Um, or sorry, Zach Wilson. Um, it's tough. Oh, me on too. A- like it's tough on a week without as much value to spend up a ton at quarterback for me. Um, you know, and I'm normally a spend up on quarterback guy because these like, especially these rushing quarterbacks have uh, so much ceiling and floor compared to these pocket passing quarterbacks that it's, uh, it's just hard for the pocket passers to match them. But on a week like this, I think you can note that you don't need the highest score at quarterback to have the best roster. And on a week with little value, where a lot of people are going to be playing uh, <clears throat> plays with very low floors, you can play a cheaper quarterback and not sacrifice nearly as much floor as someone who's playing like a cheap wide receiver or a cheap tight end. And so... I'm not married to cheap quarterbacks, but I think that this is this is a week where I'm more interested in cheaper quarterbacks than I usually am, if that makes sense. Um, so, like, I love Zach Wilson. Uh, I'm interested in um, oh, where'd he go? Um, so I'm scrolling up the roster. Uh, interested. I'm honestly interested in Jimmy Garoppolo, despite being a 49ers fan and hating him. Um, yes. I'm going back to the well on Matt Ryan, which feels disgusting, but like, there it is. Uh, I probably want to play some Tyler Taylor Heineke, some Sam Darnold, right? Like the cheaper and mid-range quarterbacks, I feel, get you a lot of roster flexibility, and you're not sa- you're sacrificing some ceiling over the really expensive quarterbacks, but you're not you're not sacrificing as much floor, and so you know you can win with a 25% or 25 point performance from a cheap quarterback. It's really hard to win with a three point performance from a cheap wide receiver. Um, Justin Fields, I, I will happily go back to him if he's starting, which I don't know if it's been confirmed yet, um, but I'll happily play him here. Like at home versus the Lions is a very different game environment than on the road versus the Browns. Um, but like, so I don't know. It's, t- it's hard for me to pick my favorite quarterback. I think it's probably Justin Fields if he's starting. Um, but given that this is less, show less likely about 
less about plays and more about structure. Like I just, this is a week where I feel like cheaper quarterbacks need to be considered because of the roster flexibility they give us on a week where, you know, finding value is tough. Um, But at the high end, like I also just, I want the quarterbacks that are in uh, those highest, those high total games, which also means uh, Jalen Hurts and Jimmy Garoppolo are kind of the, some of the cheaper ones in those potential shootout games and Darnold as well. Um, so like, like I'm looking for where I can find the, re- the great game environments, but without investing, you know, 8k and Josh Allen, who's, he could put up 40, right? Josh Allen's an amazing quarterback, but I feel like uh, the sacrifices you have to make on your roster elsewhere on a week within value are pretty significant. If you want to play Josh Allen or Patrick Mahomes. Yeah. So a lot of great stuff there. And I'm trying to take mental notes to, to expand on a little bit. Hopefully I capture all of what I wanted to talk about. But first of all, did you read the end around this week already? Uh, no, I, my like Saturdays are usually like play with the kiddo and hang out family day until like, until coming down for this. No, that's perfect. I, because I talk about Jimmy Garoppolo and I was just curious. Really, God, what a week. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So um, <laughs> we actually investing real American dollars in Jimmy Garoppolo. <laughs> Well, this is going to lead into what I want to talk about with respect to late swap. Uh, and it involves San Francisco and Jimmy Garoppolo pretty heavily. So we'll get there. Um, but my favorite quarterback on the slate is Zach Wilson. Uh, the reasons why pretty much fall in line with what you had talked about. The why behind the how of why X and I are independently being drawn towards cheaper quarterbacks this season and again, or this, this week. Um, the why behind the how is with has, I guess, has to do with range of outcomes and variance, positional variance, we'll say. So the quarterback position is a lower variance position. Why is that? Well, they touch the ball the most of anybody in the game. So obviously they're going to, with that comes additional expected output um, and a tighter range of outcomes. Now that is not to say that Patrick Mahomes, Josh Allen, Kyler Murray, these top end guys do not have a higher range of outcomes than, you know, guys at the bottom, like Justin Fields, Jared Goff, Zach Wilson, Matt Ryan, you know, all these guys we just talked about because their range of outcomes is shifted right on the access. It is, it is a higher range of potential outcomes, but again, in the same vein, the position of quarterback overall is a lower variance position than say wide receiver or running back even. Uh, it is the lowest variance position in NFL DFS. So what does that mean to us? Well, that means that a 90% outcome for Zach Wilson could equal a 60% outcome for the top end guys. And that is what we're looking to leverage on a week like this, because what that allows you to, to do on the rest of your roster is take higher variance positions and take the higher ceiling that comes with those elite plays at those positions. For example, we're, we're going to talk about, you know, the, the slate breakers or the, the guys with the highest ceiling potential on a week like this, the guys that stand out to me as the potential slate breakers are Irie Hill, Devonte Adams, Stefan Diggs, Travis Kelsey, and Derek Henry. And what do all those guys have in common? They're priced at the top of their position. So paying down at a low variance position allows us to allocate that salary at a higher variance position. And that means capturing a greater net potential range of outcomes. Again, that's 
extremely theory heavy and hopefully we didn't lose anybody there, but that is, that is the why behind the how of why X and I are being independently driven to lower cost quarterbacks this week. I want to add one other note here. I mentioned Justin Fields as my favorite quarterback in the cheap range. And you mentioned Zach Wilson. And I think, I think it's important to, to note the differences between the two. I think Justin Fields has a stronger personal range of outcomes than Zach Wilson if he's successful, um, right? Assuming he's not just not ready for the NFL, right? But like his not his 50th, his 90th percentile outcomes are going to be higher than Zach Wilson. Um, but uh, the problem is he doesn't necessarily help you eliminate uh, an additional one or two roster spots, right? Zach Wilson, if he hits, it's almost guaranteed that at least one of Corey Davis or Jamison Crowder are going to have a good game. Uh, whereas if Justin Fields hits, we could see that through the rushing game. And so, you know, we could, and, and they also just have, they have a wider range of distribution of volume on the offense as a whole. And so we could just, we could easily see Fields hit without bringing a receiver along with him. And I'd argue it's probably pretty unlikely that Fields brings two receivers along with him. So even if Fields is a stronger in a vacuum play, Wilson could be a stronger roster construction play because he lets you uh, check off multiple boxes. Yep, I dig it, man. Let's let's talk a little bit about fields a little bit more before we get into Garoppolo, which is going to lead us into the next thing that we're going to talk about. So with fields in particular, we have to mention it would be a disservice if we didn't. We have to mention the fact that Matt Nagy is no longer calling plays for Chicago. That is historically i say historically because we basically just have last year and this year's worth of data on that but that is historically a plus for the potential fantasy output of chicago um nagy is basically has proven to be in over his head at trying to manage a game and call plays and he has been highly ineffective so what does that do in a matchup against a detroit defense who is seeding heavy downfield work as well as opportunities and production to the running back position well, that makes me highly interested in some of these guys, and we'll we'll get to some of them as well. But that is the why behind the how on Justin Fields, and something that we need to need to mention because that actually has a pretty large effect, and it is not I haven't seen that mentioned throughout the industry at a very heavy rate this week. So that's actually a, a pretty big um, indicator of expected increase to fantasy production from that team. I think it's recent news, and I'm not even sure if it's. I didn't even see if it was 100% confirmed, but I believe, if I remember right, and I, you may correct me if I'm wrong, uh, Nagy gave up calling plays to Lazor, um, which is another amazing name, um, at some point last <laughs> season, and there was a very clear uh, difference in offensive production when Bill Lazor took over calling plays, like significant. Correct. And so like seeing that happen again is, is, is a, is a meaningful data point for a struggling offense, right? Like I, I don't have the data in front of me. I wish I did. I wish I'd, I'd saw it on Twitter somewhere and I wish I'd saved it. Um, but it's, it was pretty significant, right? The bears got a lot better um, very quickly when Bill Lazor took over. And so like, that's, that's definitely reason for optimism. If you want to be on that team on that game. Correct. I love it. Let's move over to Jimmy Garoppolo real quick before we clog this up any further. Or I guess you know, we're just yeah. we're just getting I so hate, deep. I, I love hate it. Jimmy G. So deep. God. All right, Jimmy Garoppolo. This is going to lead us into our late swap discussion for this week. So Jimmy Garoppolo and the San Francisco 49ers taking on a Seattle team at home. 
We have two big questionable players who are going to drastically affect the outlook of San Francisco this week. And the first is George Kittle. He is obviously a large, large part of the efficiency of that run offense, even outside of the work that he does through the pass game. And then we have Elijah Mitchell as well. So in my mind, there are two perfect scenarios with respect to those two players. The first of which is both of them play, in which case Elijah Mitchell should be good for 20 to 22 running back opportunities. And he gets George Kittle, who increases the efficiency of the run blocking from that team. The other side of that is if both of them miss. If both of them miss, now we have Trey Sermon, who's expected to lead the backfield, has proven to be highly ineffective and has proven to show some mental lapses both on and off the field so far this season. And the team loses one of their best run blockers along the or in the trenches in George Kittle. So that would, in my mind, tilt San Francisco's game plan more pass heavy, enter Jimmy Garoppolo and his pass catchers. Uh, if George Kittle misses and Elijah Mitchell miss, we can expect a ma- vast majority of their offense to run through the pass game and furthermore to run through Debo Samuel and Brandon Ayuk. So that is a highly intriguing late swap opportunity for me. And again, I will be attacking either of those sides pretty heavily if we get one of those perfect outcomes with that. If one plays and one misses of those two guys, I'm less likely to be uh, to have the same level of interest in the San Francisco 49ers, but um, it's definitely something to keep an eye on with leaving yourself options available through late swap this week. I have nothing to add. Sorry, I, <laughs> I, think, <to> cough. <laughs> uh, I think about it the same way. I mean, right. Like late swap you get, uh, assuming we don't get, and I saw you have an interaction in Discord earlier where someone's like, I hope we get a Schefter tweet about their status. And you were like, I hope we don't. Um, yeah. <laughs> which I think is really the correct play, right? Like, we all like certainty. And the, like, the, the hope for the Schefter news is that we want that certainty. But uh, if you're a sharp DFS player, and if you're someone who can be around at your computer um, to, to make changes, you will find more edge through uncertainty. Right. Like reacting to uncertainty is a skill and it's something that just that helps differentiate, you know, weaker DFS players from stronger DFS players. And uh, you will see this a lot in NBA, right? Being able to late swap intelligently when we get news with not a lot of time for projections to adjust. And so you can't just lean on like, well, I'll just press the optimizer button. You actually have to like spend some time thinking and be like, who does this help? And so, you know, you get tremendously lower ownership on these late swap situations when the news comes late, when we don't have an inkling of what's going to happen, right? Last week, uh, we were talking about Cook and Madison, and we got pretty conclusive news that Cook wasn't playing on Saturday night. Uh, I don't remember the exact wording, but it, it, was, it was pretty clear that Cook wasn't going to play Saturday night. And so Madison was massively owned. Um, right. Imagine how different the scenario would have been uh, if we got news that Cook was a legit game time decision or that Cook was expected to play and then didn't play. You would have gotten Madison and that big performance he delivered at much lower ownership. So we actually like we want uncertainty because we're better equipped to deal with it and to profit from it than most people are. Could not have said it better myself. Absolutely love it. Anything else to add at the quarterback position? We've kind of beaten it pretty, pretty well. 
don't play Ben Roethlisberger. I don't know. <laughs> oh, I like that one. That's a good one, actually. <laughs> I wouldn't play Ben Roethlisberger. <laughs> Yeah. All right. Sweet. Let's jump over to the running back position. We'll take this one. Uh, this one's a little bit more cut and dry uh, with less moving pieces. So it should go a little bit faster, but like we alluded to earlier, a vast majority of the field's interest or a vast majority of the viable plays are in that 5,800, maybe 5,600. If you're looking at Darrell Henderson, which uh, I think is viable, uh, but, and up price range. Um, so Again, we talked about how that's going to affect the overall composition of other rosters. But how are you thinking that the field is going to attack the running back position this week? I mean, what ownership says is it's either going to be Derrick Henry and then one of those kind of more mid-range guys, or it's going to be two of those mid-range guys on the majority of rosters. Um, we're going to see right a lot of like Henry and Montgomery, Henry and Swift, Henry and Chuba, Chuba. I don't know. Uh, and we're going to see plays of like this two of the mid range guys. It's, it's really hard to build a roster this week. I think uh, that, in, that is two of the really expensive guys. Like uh, people are going to struggle to build rosters with like Henry and Camara or Henry and Delvin, um, who of course is still uncertain. You don't know what's happening with Delvin, but um, so another one of those potential swap situations. But uh, I think that it's, it's, it's like the bulks in the middle, which I think you covered earlier. I think that there's not, there's not a lot of great cheap value at running back. I think there's a lot of um, mid-range guys that project as reasonable values, but the values like the, the one of the things I look at is like median point per dollar uh, or median projection uh, on a salary basis, like points per sal- points per dollar salary uh, and then ceiling is from a point per dollar basis. And it's really tightly clustered and like, right. Like there's, and DraftKings, every like almost everyone, um, or most of the most of the guys you'd think about playing, are projecting between 2.5 or so uh, points per thousand of salary to 2.7 points per thousand of salary, which is essentially immaterial, right? Like that's a rounding error um, in a high variance sport. And so again, like this comes back a lot for me, but I'm just going. To, I'm going. I'm more willing to embrace variance here and say, look, if I can get. You know, if Derrick Henry and Alvin Kamara are projecting at essentially the same on a point per dollar basis, and I can get Alvin Kamara for half the ownership, like, and again, I'm thinking from an MME perspective here because Yahoo has this amazing tournament where the 33% overlay guaranteed. So I'm kind of planning my builds around that tournament. Um, I, if, you're, if you're not playing on Yahoo and you're not playing in this tournament, it's free money. Um, but so I'm I'm just looking at it from that like that ownership perspective from a an MME from an MME perspective of like where am I going to be overweight and underweight? But I think on a a, like a single roster or three max, I think what you're seeing though is that it's going to be mostly that mid range build, right? Henry is going to be the highest in running back, but he's still only projecting for like 25 percent ish. So that makes him the highest on play of the slate probably. But it, that still means that the majority of rosters are not going to have him or a running back in his pricing tier. Kamara's Kamara's looking low. Dalvin's looking low. There's no one else priced up there, right? It's like most rosters are going to have two running backs that are like 6,500 or less. Yeah. So what is the field not going to be doing is what Hilo looks for. And that's an easy way to generate leverage without making suboptimal plays. And when I talk about this, I'm actually going to lump the tight end position in with the running back position because it drives home the overall state of this slate. So the field is not going to be playing two high-priced running backs, and they're likely not going to be playing a high-priced running back with Travis Kelsey because he is 
oh god he is 2200 more than the next highest priced <clears throat> tight end so when the field is not going to be paying to pay up running backs or one paired with Travis Kelsey, what is Hilo going to be looking to doing? I'm going to be looking to play a pay up running back paired with Travis Kelsey or two pay up running backs. It's an easy way. I, and I don't, we don't know if that is going to be optimal this week. I just know that the chances of roster constructions that are built in that way of them breaking the slate outweighs the expected ownership on builds like that. So I'll take the expected value and I'll have fun on Sunday watching the games. Like that's just what it boils down to. The field is not going to be pairing Alvin Kamara with Derrick Henry. The field is not going to be playing Derrick Henry with Travis Kelsey. So I, the expected 20 to 25% ownership on Derrick Henry is immaterial to me at that point, because I know that my rosters are built differently. <clears throat> so again, and I also, I do like, and I will have, you know, two mid price running backs, uh, which allows me to take, again, calculated risks at other positions. Uh, but that is kind of how I'm viewing the slate. And that is the, again, comes from the narrowing down what we expect to be the chalk build. I think I might have just built a roster that you, I'm just, I'm just dicking around here. I'm like, what happens if I put in Zach Wilson? <laughs> I'm like, what if I put in Zach Wilson and Corey Davis and Jamison Crowder and then I put in Derrick Henry and Travis Kelsey? I'm like, I'm just kind of futzing around over here. Yeah, um, you got Hilo's single entry. There it is. But you can build some fun <laughs> rosters that way, right? And, and, and you don't, like when your core is low owned, you can kind of play everyone else you want and not worry about the ownership because A, you have this sort of low owned like core of your quarterback and receiver stack <clears throat> and B, you have, uh, you're 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 just built differently because even though Henry's high owned and even though Kelsey is going to be modestly owned, to Hilo's point, they won't be paired together very often because most people want to play one of these high-priced wide receivers, and so you can just sort of avoid that, and you know, and you can be different but smartly different while still playing good plays. I love it, man. Anything else to add at the running back position? Um, I'm just like. I feel like I'm out of victory lap over Najee Harris for last week. Um, <laughs> there you go. Oh, I'm no, on. I don't. No, I'm not. Uh, I will say like, there's a couple guys I feel like are going somewhat overlooked relative to their ceilings, not their floors. Um, mm -hmm. I think Dalvin Cook is likely to be very low owned if he plays. Uh, and he still has, you know, Derrick Henry has a stronger overall projection, I think, which is right. I think Alvin Kamara is probably a better in a box play. Um, but Alvin is likely to be really low owned if he plays. Uh, I think Elijah Mitchell, as we kind of talked about earlier, is going to be really low owned if he plays. Um, I think there's a couple other attractive ones. Where are they? Uh, the Cleveland running backs, right? Like Cleveland operates very heavily through its running backs. Um, Nick. Chubb and Kareem Hunt. I would only play one on a roster, but like, and I like Hunt better. He's cheaper, and I think that without Jarvis Landry, um, they're gonna need they they need his role in the the short passing game. Um, you know, they only have like one wide receiver. <laughs> like, really, they have they have they have Beckham, and that's kind of it. And like, they spread the ball around a lot. But I think that Hunt is he's going really overlooked compared to what I think his ceiling is. These are shaky floor plays, to be clear. Um, I got some flack last week for talking about like a leverage play that was a terrible floor play. And I did, I was not, I did not specify that, which is fair. Um, <laughs> asterisk. Yeah. Yeah. Asterisk. Right. Jonathan Taylor's another one. Like he's, you know, we've seen some monstrous ceiling games from Jonathan Taylor and he's going to be the way that they have to try and move the ball against a really strong Miami pass defense. 
uh, and with multiple injuries in their passing and their their receiving core and at their quarterback position, right? Like Jonathan Taylor makes sense as the the to be, for this to be a you know he, build the game plan around him perspective. These are all low floor plays, but like I think they belong in in, in tournament consideration. Yeah, I'll add another name. And although he's expected to garner ownership, based on what we've talked about today so far, I don't think it's going to be high enough. And that's David Montgomery. So the big things that I've been off, or I guess the biggest reason that I've been off David Montgomery for any time Matt Nagy is calling plays is because he his system and how he runs that offense does not target the running back position very heavily. Well, now we have Laser coming in who has shown the propensity to target the running back position and the quarterback, whoever they decide or whoever is the starting quarterback for that team is almost immaterial at that point against a Detroit team that can be beaten both on the ground and through running backs through the air. So if Dave Montgomery and he has target totals of four over the last past two games each. So if he sees, you know, that uptick to six to seven target range he is immaterial underpriced at 5.8. So I like that play a good deal. And again, leveraging off of the uncertainty there. Um, but I like that play a good deal. Yeah. You have and just home favorite three down running back, right? Like that's, you know, sometimes it's simple. And I guess one of the things I like to do is uh, I have a tendency personally to uh, overcomplicate things by like digging into like every level of analysis. And I try to make sure that I also kind of like lift my head up from that and, and look at like, what's the simple stuff say. So like, I always have a list every week of what are the highest total teams and all the players on those teams, like the five highest total teams. What are, what's the list of all the home favorite running backs. And I just try to kind of like double check my analysis and my player pool against those lists sometimes to like, make sure that I'm uh, not just overlooking someone. And, you know, Dave Montgomery, it, <laughs> I mean, like he gets a lot of shit as a player, right? Like people don't like David Montgomery for whatever reason. He's uh, he's often viewed as like, quote unquote, not good. Um, he's, you know, the, the Bears offense has not been great, which obviously hampers him. But here he's a home favorite running back. He's as likely as anyone on the slate not named Henry and maybe Harris and maybe Dalvin if he plays to see 20 plus touches. He's got a good he's got a good uh, offensive line matchup against a Lions defense that is bad against everything. Um, so there's a lot of marks in his favor. And then when you add in the uh, the coaching change and the expected benefit to the overall offensive environment as a result of that coaching change, I agree. He's projecting yeah, he's high, of, but not as high as he should be. Yeah, yeah, that's kind of what I was I was getting at as well. I think. Um, I think in that mid range, you're going to see ownership largely spread out uh, and he makes an easy way to get exposure without having to largely differentiate. So I like it. All right, let's quickly wrap up tight end and then we'll get into some questions. We're doing, dude, we're at an hour. We're actually not doing bad. Okay. I feel like I felt like we got so sidetracked talking about other theory things without talking about like the play, the games and the positions. I was worried it was going to take forever. No, I think we, I think we're doing great. So Travis Kelsey and then everybody else basically at the tight end position, right? We have yeah, just Travis Kelsey. Yeah, that's what I'm doing this week. <laughs> Done. <laughs> Move on next. So yeah, we talked about the overall macro <laughs> of the slate is likely going to lead people to, to cherry pick this bottom tier of pricing. Um, you know, we, we mentioned a couple of the names, Disley, Blake Jarwin, and 
both basically both Dallas tight ends and Dalton Schultz. Ty Conklin just paid off his best ball ADP last week in one game. <laughs> uh, and he's probably going to carry some ownership as well. Um, and then you have Evan Ingram down at 3K, Cole Komet down at 3K, who are likely going to garner ownership as well. So that makes me much more likely to try and fit a high price tight end in. Well, that high price tight end tier this week is basically just Travis Kelsey. We also have um, Kyle Pitts, who's priced at 5K, kind of in that nebulous region, um, and Logan Thomas, who actually I expect to garner some ownership this week uh, at uh, right around Kyle Pitts. Um, so Kyle Pitts in a vacuum, nothing has changed. So real quick, nothing has changed with respect to the stance <laughs> on Atlanta. Zero has changed. We know absolutely nothing how that offense is supposed to look. And Kyle Pitts remains, you know, the arguments for Kyle Pitts from week two on remain the same. Same thing with Calvin Ridley. Uh, so with that out of the way, I much prefer Kyle Pitts to Logan Thomas, who's expected to come in much lower ownership. Um, but realize that that is does not fundamentally fundamentally affect the remainder of your roster as much as paying up at the position this week. That is really all I got at the tight end position. Anything to add, X? Yeah, like I have decided, I mean, I am either going to catch the Pitts explosion game or I'm going to be poor at the end of the season. And like, <laughs> it's that, you know, like I'm on him. Um, I'm going to keep being on him. His ownership keeps dropping. <laughs> uh, so either I'll, you know, either I'll catch the blow up game, win all the money at some point um, or I'll lose all my money. My wife, my wife will be pissed. So it's like, for me, it's for me, the, the plays, the tight ends I will play in a vacuum this week. It's a very short list. It's Kelsey and it's Kyle Pitts. And I'm kind of pondering TJ Hawkinson, but probably not at, at not at 5,800. And so other than that, I'm just going to play tight end. Like I'll have exposure to other tight ends through game stacks. Right. So mm -hmm. when I'm stacking Seattle, San Francisco, I'll have some Kittle and some Disley when I'm stacking, um, Dallas, Carolina, I might have some Dalton Schultz and some Blake Jarwin, right? Like when I'm stacking Minnesota, Cleveland, that's where I'll put Tyler Conklin. Um, you know, Tyler Higby goes in the stacks of that game. But other than that, I'm just, I'm not going to play a lot of vacuum tight ends, right? Like if Travis Kelsey fails, he will drag me down with him. And I will feel like at least, you know, I lost with the best play at the position. But it's entirely foreseeable here that Travis Kelsey puts up 25 points or more and not a single other tight end passes 12. Like that could easily happen. Um, we see, we say slates like that all the time. So that wouldn't surprise me as an outcome. And if that happens, like you're just so far ahead of the field by just by embracing the certainty you get or the high probability you get with Kelsey that, and, and that's kind of usually my approach, honestly. Like I either my, my approach at tight end is is pretty consistent slate to slate. It's usually either I pay up for a stud if they're on the slate, and that stud is basically Travis Kelsey, occasionally Waller, or I'm paying uh or I'm just playing in game in stacks. I'm playing a tight end that's, that's in a stack when I can get them at really low ownership. Keep it simple, stupid. I love it. I feel like otherwise you're just kind of playing. It's like you're just throwing darts at a dartboard, right? Being like, there's 20 different tight ends in the slate who could get three catches and a touchdown. And can I guess the right one? Then even if I do, is that enough? That's the most salient point is, is it enough if it actually... So you, you one, have to guess right. And then two, you have to worry about it being enough. So the percent of 
percentage chance of that outcome actually transpiring is extremely low. And that's why X and I are both kind of in agreement at the tight end position here. I dig it. All right, man. I got nothing else. I think we covered everything that I wanted to get through from a macro perspective on the slate. Do you have any, oh, by the ways, before we bring in some questions? We want to talk just really briefly about defense. Ah, oh, there's a defense position. <clears throat> I mean, I would say this. Like, I'll, I'll start. Don't play Detroit, Atlanta, <laughs> Jets, or Dallas. Yes, um, please. I mean, and this is not that they're bad defenses, right? This is not saying they can't hit. It's saying that we what, one thing we know with a high degree of certainty is that the correlation between defensive ownership and defensive point production is essentially nil like not statistically significant the field sucks at picking defenses so oh, yeah. one of the be- one of the strongest plus ev things you can do in any given week is take like the the, the whichever defenses are projecting the chalkiest and there's usually between 1 and three or so um, and just check them off your list and just say, I'm not playing these ones. And if they hit, I lose. Um, or if they hit, you know, I'm, I can still keep up because you can still get a good score for another defense. Um, but like that this week, I'm just going to, I'm checking those ones off my list entirely because they're, it's pretty rare to see a defense get above, above 10% with how much variance the position has. And, um, but those are all projecting for above 10 because the field's starved for value. So I'm just going to avoid them entirely. Yeah, my my number one defense for a lot of the reasons that you just talked about is the New Orleans Saints at 3.8. One, mm-hmm. they are a roster differentiator. Two, they are the highest scoring defense on the season. Three, they are in their home opener after another hurricane rolled through New Orleans uh, against a team missing two of its primary playmakers. Uh, and oh, by the way, that team has Daniel Jones at quarterback. So uh, love that when you look at pressure rate differential and defensive line, offensive line mismatches. Saints are at the top of the list this week uh, Mm -hmm. with net adjusted sack rate. So that is the top or in my mind, the top defense play on the slate for all those reasons. I also like the Colts if paying down ish Mm -hmm. at 2.7 against a Miami offense in shambles. And we talk about another defensive line, offensive line mismatch. Talk about a backup quarterback, all that good stuff with that play as well. Yeah, yeah, I like, I like the Colts. If you want, to, I mean, if you want to pay down, like, I, here's a question: Is would you rather pay down at twenty percent ownership with the Lions, or would you rather pay down at like six percent ownership with the Colts, who are a better defense and are also going up against a backup quarterback? Right, like that, that seems like an easy choice to me. Um, I think that I will also note. Um, I'm okay with, I mean, Bills D is really expensive, but like David Mills did not look good and Bills D has been solid. Um, Packers kind of seems like a mismatch. I think the Packers uh, D line is a mismatch for the Steelers O line and Ben has looked horrible. So that seems like a reasonable option. They're they're kind of mid-priced. Yeah, for that, me, I'm, I'll just throw in real quick. That depends a lot on Z Smith, so Darius Smith, whether or not he's going to be active, and he generates a a very big mismatch down low there. Isn't he coming off of IR? Or is that not I, confirmed yet? I think so, but I don't. I haven't seen a confirmation. Okay, I think I was assuming it. Um, and also, like, here's a defense that has not been good so far, but like Atlanta has looked so god awful that like, why would you not target defenses against them? Uh, until they show that they've actually gotten their shit together. So Washington's in my pool. 
Yeah, and Washington, that's a defense that came into the season expecting to be a top five unit, and they have vastly underperformed in the secondary. So yeah. uh, interesting one there as well. I'll throw one more at you, and this is some a defense that I tweeted about this week, and that's the Carolina Panthers. They're the only defense with mm. four or more sacks in every game this year, which is interesting to think about. Uh, and the Cowboys offensive line has been much more successful in run blocking than they have been in pass blocking. So, uh, that is a completely off the board one for you. If you want to get crazy, crazy. I actually like that. And what's interesting is I think people are going to play the Dallas defense as leverage against that game's, uh, pass game ownership. Um, yeah. because Dallas is much cheaper. And so, you know, they're going to say, oh, well, I'll, I'll, you know, and it's and it's Sam Darnold who's terrible, right? And so they're going to play a lot of Dallas D as leverage against that. But what if it's the Panthers D, right? Like, again, we have very, it's very hard to project defensive success, but Carolina has gotten off, like their defense has been underrated and, and outperforming. And so it makes sense, I think, to approach that from sort of the opposite side of the leverage angle and say, look, I'll, I'll let the other side of the, of that game in hopes that the past game fails. Yes, sir. All right. But, Thanks for keeping uh, me honest. Hey, real, real quick. Yeah. Justin Fields was uh, just confirmed as the starting quarterback. Oh, very nice. Ooh, now I like Montgomery even more. Yep. <laughs> Aaron, talk to me, dude. All right, gentlemen. Thank you. Uh, let's get going. Questions. This one's going to come from Johnny RGX, and I'm going to add to his question a little bit because I think this is a common question we get. And the question is, what practical advice can you offer for identifying the chalk construction on a given week? And I actually want to take it a step further. And I know you do the end around, but I think a lot of us are shifting play around kind of like X is talking about Yahoo. Um, I know Jam is playing on FanDuel this weekend a little bit. So wanted just to talk to you guys about how you identify that on other sites. Well, first of all, I will, I'll answer the question and then I will defer the second half of that question to X because I am a DK only player. Um, but the, the process of identifying the chalk and I alluded to this earlier is extremely complex because you have to first have a good grasp on the slate in that, what are the good plays? And then you have to consider the psychological aspects of the field and, you know, all things from recency bias to, um, a narrowed expected game environment pool. So if there's two or three clear uh, game environments on the slate, obviously that's going to influence expected ownership. And, and then you have to consider all those different aspects from the constraints of a salary cap. So it's a process that takes me a solid four, I guess, three days to actually get through. And that's why I write the end around on Friday evening to be released on Saturday. And I've had some questions about writing it earlier to get that info out earlier. And it's one of those situations where I simply can't because it takes me that long to, to get through my process to identify what a chalk build looks like or how to narrow down a chalk build. Part of that, obviously the inputs to that are ownership, but you have to really have or i guess be in tune to the psychological aspects of the game of fantasy sports and in order to do that obviously i first have to get through all the games to do that so without and that's why i mentioned 
I, I'm not really answering this question, but there's so much that goes into it. And that's kind of why I mentioned earlier that maybe I can put out a piece that, that goes into it a little bit more in depth, because this is something that it's not something that's like Hilo teach me in five minutes. It's like something that has taken like years to develop. And I think would be most beneficial if I answer that through other medium. X, do you want to talk right. about, uh, were you here for, or did you hear the second yeah. part of the question? Okay. Yeah, Over yeah. to you, bro. Right. So can't speak for JM. Um, I personally feel like FanDuel has been softer for me uh, over the last couple of years across multiple sports. And so I don't know, like, I'm not trying to say FanDuel has a bunch of morons playing there, like there's a bunch of very short people playing there too, just like DraftKings. Um, but for whatever reason, um, FanDuel, I've had much better results on FanDuel. And my style of DFS play is I play to make money. I don't play because I want to beat the best players in the world or show off how good I am, right? Well, like, I just want to be profitable. And so given that I have years of data showing that I'm more profitable on FanDuel, why would I not focus my play there? And then as far as other sites like Yahoo, <clears throat> I've kind of poked around Yahoo a fair bit over the years, but this year it feels like they are trying to really go big on their DFS product. They're, they're investing uh, a lot of money in big GPPs and they haven't been filling. And so of all the different factors that we can target that improve our expected value, I would argue that probably the single greatest one is finding overlay, right? So Yahoo's flagship tournament this week is um, 37.5K entries, $20 entry fee, a million in prizes. That means that they are, even if the tournament fills 100% of the way, which it looks like it probably will this week, they're going to collect $750,000 in entry fees and pay out a million. So that means if you are a completely average player, um, you know, not good, not bad, just totally average, the expected value of a lineup you enter for $20 is about $26.66. So like, why would you not be entering that, right? Like the expected value of every single lineup is positive. Normally, the expected value of a tournament lineup is negative uh, of an average tournament lineup because of the rake. And so like, that's what I look for. I just, I look for overlay um, because like, you know, why, why, try, why try to swim upstream trying to win a tournament on DraftKings that's full um, and has a 12% rake when I can play a tournament on Yahoo that has a negative rake that pays me to play it. Um, so I would argue if you're playing tournaments this week and you're playing like fairly large tournaments, right? This is a 37.5K entry tournament. Um, but if you're playing larger tournaments, uh, I would argue that you should max Yahoo before entering a single dollar on any other in any other tournament on any other site because 33% expected value is enormous. The same with Superdraft, right? Superdraft, uh, despite not filling their main tournament any week so far, uh, they're keeping it at <clears throat> 11,500 entrants. Um, last week, I think it got to like 94, 9,500. So it was basically rake-free and a little bit of extra overlay on top. Um, and so like, again, why would I, why would I play uh, tournaments that are full where I'm paying the rake instead of playing tournaments that are overlaying where they're paying me? So as simple as that, really. Not overlay. All right. Hilo, I think that's got to be uh, a 2022 uh, a course, a, a game theory, how to figure it out on other sites. So something to keep in mind. Let's do it. 
All right, next question is Trey to Trey. When a stud like DK Metcalf is projected at low ownership, sub 5%, is that a good reason? Is that reason enough to play him without a run back from the Niners? So to me, I'm always first thinking about game environments when I am building rosters. So the first box that DK Metcalf would check is he's in an expected plus or positive game environment. So what does that mean to me is when you look at DK Metcalf in particular, he he is at his greatest value when we can project him for additional volume because he is such a large portion or he sees such a large portion of the expected pass volume from that team. I think his, his team target market share is upwards of 30. I think it's like 30.5% right now. Um, and when you, when you think about it from that sense, you start to realize that he is most likely to hit a 90% outcome when we can confidently project or when we can't, and his ownership is low, but when we can, when he sees additional volume and like we talked about with the Seattle, San Francisco game, there is a very clear path for Seattle to see additional pass volume in a game setup like this. That said, the optimal, with all those things considered, the optimal way to play DK Metcalf in particular is through a correlated pairing or a game stack because he's almost only, I wouldn't, I won't say almost only, but he has a greater chance of hitting a 90% outcome with an increase to volume because it is a very low pass volume offense to begin with. But when they do, he's a vital, all right, a vital integral part of that pass offense. So hopefully that answered that question. I just want to say, like, I'll add on. I don't think, and I think what Hal is trying to get here, he's trying to get to, as I, I note, as Brandon Crawford almost hits a walk-off home run, he misses it by a couple of feet, sigh, um, is that you can't just say, this guy has a slate-breaking ceiling and he's low-owned, so I will play him. You have to understand how that ceiling comes about how it materializes, um, what it takes. Like in DK Metcalf's case, we know, to Hilo's point, Seattle is happy to be a slow-paced, run-heavy team to the frustration of basically everyone besides Pete Carroll um, if, you know, like if they can be. And so it takes a team pushing them to make them kind of open up. We know that Buffalo is not that. Buffalo is happy to throw the ball. And like, so Steph Diggs, for example, he can hit without the other team keeping up. DK Metcalf is, is more of a player who asked, he kind of needs the other team to keep up. Um, and so you have to understand the, the way each offense operates in order to identify sort of the, what you need is sort of the win condition for each player. Like, you know, what, what gets this player to victory, um, to, to, you know, fantasy victory? Um, is it, you know, is it can happen in a vacuum without nothing else? Or is it, uh, you know, is it, does it require some other condition for it to happen? All right. Next question is from Troy G. Interested in the negative correlation of playing running back versus the opposing defense, and more specifically, the Lions and Demont specifically. Hashtag it depends. So, what type of running back is it? Is it a yardage and touchdown on the ground guy is it deandre swift you see it it depends 
where like a guy like DeAndre Swift, you can play with the opposing defense one primarily because I guess I should say that no one is doing it. So it generates a high amount of leverage, but two, they can both hit at a higher frequency than a yardage and touchdown back against the unopposing defense where you're narrowing the, your outs, you're narrowing the potential outcomes for those two to hit together. So again, back to the example that I used, DeAndre Swift. Well, if the, his opposing defense scores a defensive touchdown, well, that all that does is increase the expected pass volume for DeAndre Swift in a vacuum on paper, right? So they can both technically hit together at a higher frequency than a yardage and touchdown guy. So is looking at your specific example for this week, is David Montgomery a yardage and touchdown back? Well, the answer is we don't really know because laser is coming into call plays. So he has shown to be primarily a yardage and touchdown back, you know, with two to three to four uh, targets mixed in, but on paper, they are unlikely to be able to provide GPP winning scores together. We talked about the Lions defense uh, ad nauseum up to this point, so I won't belabor that, but hopefully that answers the question. And it starts with, again, the path to success for each individually. Yeah. Yeah. You also, you have to consider the path to success for a defense too, right? Like defensive path to success, like this, the formula basically is you want an opposing offense that's dropping back to throw a lot because pass attempts uh, can generate sacks, right? Like a, a, a rush cannot generate a sack. So you need some likely to generate exceptions result in defensive touchdowns. Um, yes, yeah, so a running back fumble could, be, could, could result in a defensive touchdown, but at a much lower rate, because when running backs fumble, it tends to be in the middle of a giant pile of dudes and everyone's just falling over on, on top of the ball. So, you know, if David Montgomery carries the ball 25 times, that inherently means that there's, there are going to be fewer pass attempts. So thus fewer opportunities for the Lions D to score. It's like you have to understand, you want to understand the way that defenses generate points. And, you know, what, whereas Tyler's point, DeAndre Swift, he's going to generate more of his points or he has so far this season through his receiving work, which is game script immune. So, you know, he can, he can hit what the opposing defense still hits because he's not like the guy who's going to get 25 carries and sort of pound the clock out and, and, and eat up like a huge percentage of the opposing uh, or of the, of the total playbook, right. Of the total number of plays. All right. This one's from Jay fresh picks and I'll, I'll send it over to Zandemir here. Uh, the question is Yahoo specific strategy takes for this weekend. Um, Yeah, I mean, like, that's like a whole show in itself, right? (laughs) Like, at the end of the day, right, Yahoo's scoring, it's half point PPR with no bonus, which means it's essentially it's Fanduel scoring. Um, Right? So on Yahoo, you want to weight touchdowns more heavily, uh, because there's no like, there's no full point PPR, and there's no yardage bonus. Um, It's what I've experienced on Yahoo is that the chalk on the, the chalk plays that are chalky on DraftKings and FanDuel are generally chalkier on Yahoo for the most part. Um, so, like if Devontae Adams is going to be really chalky on DraftKings and Yahoo, he'll probably be even chalkier. Or sorry, DraftKings and FanDuel, he'll probably be even more chalky on Yahoo. 
Um, and that's a trend I've noticed hold true across both uh, football and basketball on Yahoo. Um, and what I think is happening there is there's a lot of players who play on Yahoo as their sort of second or third site. And so most of their bankroll that they're entering in a given week is going on DraftKings or FanDuel or both. And so they're fairly quickly building lineups for Yahoo. And so they're not putting a whole lot of like separate thought into strategy for Yahoo. They're just kind of like, you know, they've got their basic rule set and their optimizer. They they click over to the Yahoo tab, they hit 150 and run. Um, And so they're putting less like thought into it than than we would. Um, And then besides that, though, just look for pricing discrepancies, right? Like Yahoo's pricing, you will find some significant discrepancies between uh, DraftKings and FanDuel. For example, like the median price of a, a median salary, uh, roster spot salary is, is $22 on Yahoo. Um, right. So we know what DraftKings and FanDuel are. So some, some meaningful players who are below that, uh, in like DeAndre Swift is, where is he? He's like, here we go. I thought he was like 17 or something like that. Now I'm trying to find him. Where the hell did he go? $16, right? So he's well under the median salary. Um, so look for look for the pricing discrepancies, right? Like recognize the chalk's going to be chalkier and then look for where the pricing discrepancies show up. Um, but other than that, like I, I don't, I honestly don't know how to do a full like, I mean, that could be a show of itself of like how to consider Yahoo tournaments, um, which would be interesting perhaps if Yahoo, if Yahoo keeps pushing this, like heavy overlay strategy, which, which is clearly intentional on their part. They're trying to like, they're trying to attract more users and they're willing to spend like this is marketing money for them essentially. Um, and so if it seems like Yahoo is going to continue pushing really hard this year to try to build market share, then and maybe it makes sense for us to start doing some more Yahoo content because it could be that, you know, we need to, we, maybe we should start getting, uh, you know, getting more in on that if there's going to be a ton of, a uh, ton of money to be made there. Awesome. Thanks, X. And yeah, this is for everybody. If you guys have suggestions, ideas, sites that you guys want us to start looking into content, let us know. Drop them the feedback. I know Lex has been hammering uh, the Battle Royale and there's just so much uh, opportunity there. So you have that channel uh, open up too on Discord. You guys can check out. Um, this question is going to be probably our last. We'll see here. We're almost coming up on the 90 minute mark. This is from Hokum. What are your opinions about using morning only and afternoon only slates in order to build bankroll? Seems like everyone is concentrated on the main slate. Is there an edge to be gained by focusing on the smaller ones? I personally um, have seen less success on the early only or late only as I have the full Thursday to Monday slate. And that might Mm -hmm. be different. X, you're kind of seeing the same as well. It's that Thursday thing, right? Like everyone wants to play the Thursday guy. Yeah. So that would be the slate with the highest EV would be the Thursday to Monday or the full slate. Um, The, the afternoon only and the early only on Sundays, typically your, average run-of-the-mill Joe Schmo isn't entering those slates because he is primarily concerned with the higher payout contests that run on the full slate. So it's kind of a mixed bag with those early only and late only. I have had success with single entry tournaments and it's a, a similar cash rate though to my full slate. Um, 
And that is, I think just what that does is it gives you more volume for variance to work out in your favor if you are playing optimally. That's yeah. A, yeah, that's I think what the biggest allure to me of those slates is, is just an extra slate, basically. Yeah, so like if you're looking at NFL, one of the challenges with NFL is there's not a lot of weeks. And, you know, even if you're a good player, it can take a lot of slates for a positive expectation to be realized, especially in larger tournaments. And so if you can increase your sample size by playing more slates, you give yourself more opportunity for your your positive long term expectation to come to pass, essentially. Um, You know, like if you play MLB, right, like someone said this in I don't remember where Twitter, maybe, but like a couple weeks ago, I saw this where like someone saying, look, if you're playing MLB, and you go on and you you have a two-week streak of not winning a tournament, you would think nothing of that. Or a three-week streak of not winning a tournament. You would think nothing of that, right? You lose for three, three weeks of slight straight. That's normal in MLB. It's normal in NFL too. But that's the entire freaking season. <laughs> and so like that sucks, right? Like you're like, oh, gee, a losing season, I guess just variance. Um, but it's entirely possible to have a losing season just due to variance. And so the more slates that you can expose yourself to, the more I think that more opportunity there is for you to realize your edge, but you need to make sure that you're playing with an edge because if you're not, it does stretch your attention, right? You, if you want, like, remember what I said a minute ago about how people play on Yahoo and they're playing, like they're not putting a lot of thought into it. If you're not putting a lot of thought into it, then you're playing suboptimally. And you're probably just, you know, in that case, your EV is negative and you're just like adding to the number of slates at which you're bleeding money. So that's not a positive thing. One other thing I'll note, sort of similarly to late swap, is you can use the afternoon slate to hedge how you're doing on the main slate. And so, like, I had this once last year. Last year, I had a, I had a FanDuel tournament lineup that as the early games are coming to a close, every single player in it was from the early games. Uh, and it was in first place by a significant margin. And so I realized what the, where essentially like there, there was, there was one game that was going to get a lot of ownership on the late slate, which was, it was Philadelphia at uh, Arizona. And so I, I just, I went and built a whole bunch of game stacks just of that game for, um, for the afternoon slate, because I figured if that game goes off, it could take me out of first of this big tourney. Um, and so like, I'll just build stacks around that, which gives me some outs uh, if I do get knocked out of first. And sure enough, I did get knocked out of first. This was one of my like biggest moments of tilt where I lost $100,000. I, I needed one. I needed Christian Kirk not to get a catch on the last Cardinals drive of the game, which they began with less than a minute left, I think, or something like that. And sure enough, he gets a catch. Um, and so that sucked. But I, so I ended up, um, you know, being bounced to like fourth or something in that tournament. But I also had a really nice afternoon slate um, that was filled with like Christian Kirk um, and uh, whoever, you know, what was it? Uh, I guess Andy Isabella back then or all the receivers in that game. Um, so you can use it to hedge if you have a really strong sense of where you are uh, as the early games come to an end. And so like that can be a lever you can pull if you're if you're doing really well um, by by jumping in the afternoon only slate by looking for the plays that could take you down. I dig it, man. I think that is going to do it for us for today. We will catch you guys at the top of the leaderboard. X, always a pleasure, my man. I will catch you next week. 
as fun. Good to chat with you as always. Uh, awesome show. Thanks for hosting. I'll see you all in Discord uh, as we build lineups tonight and tomorrow morning. Oh, and finally, Good. drop drop the drop comments in the chat if you have suggestions, one for the pod, uh, or if you're interested in a course or a, I guess, po- solo podcast or something on chalk roster construction. All right, that'll do it, guys. I, Thanks I, for hanging I want out. That. <laughs> okay, I want Noted. that. Can you make it? Thumbs up okay. for me. Yeah, I'll fit it in. <laughs> All right, man. Have a good evening. Good luck this weekend. See you guys. Bye.